Over the course of the next couple months, we'll dig deeply into the life of the Spirit of God throughout Scripture. Last week, for those who were here, uh, we celebrated Pentecost, which is a, a marked transition in the church's calendar and way of marking time from, from celebrating Easter into this time of growth uh, by the Spirit um, in ordinary time. It's tempting uh, for us to talk about the Spirit on Pentecost and just to isolate um, it as like that main one-time big moment for the Spirit. Like that was the time when the Spirit showed up, coming down in flaming tongues upon a crowd and helping them hear and understand one another. Um, it's often described that this was somehow undoing Babel's curse of disunity and scattering pride uh, to bring about harmony in polyphony. Uh, harmony with a lot of different languages and voices. How this exactly works is a little above my pay grade, so you're not going to get that today or throughout the summer. Um, but I know that everyone at Pentecost probably heard each other say Laurel, no matter what they were saying, okay? So it, Pentecost and the Holy Spirit was a clarifying event about as clear as that, right? Um, Throughout our study, though, we'll explore this spirit that was involved. A couple of people just got the joke on that. Um, we'll explore the spirit involved in creating. Today we'll talk about creation and anointing and praising and suffering and creativity and worship and prophecy and bringing about a new age and growing fruit and adopting and fueling mission and wrapping all things up in Christ. So that's the, the, the map and the blueprint for the summer. You'll come to see pretty fast from Genesis to Revelation the sweep and scope of the Spirit's work and also the presence and promise of the Spirit in our lives today is somehow in the middle of these two poles between creation in redemption. The Spirit's been at work and the Spirit is still at work in our midst. I'll preface that talking about the Spirit is um, kind of like embarrassing a humble friend who's always there but never interrupts a conversation or draws attention to herself. Uh, the, the Spirit has been known as the shy member of the Trinity, so doing 12 weeks on the Spirit would probably be something that the Spirit would never um, call for, <laughs> um, but we hope that the Spirit is in this, right? Because uh, the Spirit's work is never freelance. It's always in concert with the Father and the Son, always sent out, but always pointing back and drawing others into that love, intimacy, and truth. The Spirit's also not some sort of life force or simply like God's good vibes. That's not how we're going to talk about the Spirit this summer. Scripture and tradition has always known the Spirit, while elusive, as personal, but without an actual body. For this reason, the Spirit gets spoken about in many different ways with various manifestations and various imagery. You hear about the Spirit in fire. We sung some of these songs today in water, oil of anointing, wisdom, the, the paraclete or advocate, or maybe even in bird form as a dove. Today, um, perhaps primarily, but especially today, we'll focus on the spirit as spirit. In the Old Testament, ruach, and in the New Testament, pneuma, breath, wind, spirit. There's, uh, you can see a little bit of, of some of the 
it's fascinating also, like these are all uh, ways of talking about the spirit, but um, there's a ton of different ways to try to depict the spirit and some of them awful and some of them really beautiful like this William Blake sketch. These words, ruach and pneuma, breath, wind, spirit, they're both feminine words intense and so perhaps knowing the spirit as a she is maybe even a little appropriate or or helpful there's a lot of scholars that range in their beliefs and in their education that that note this and and see this in the text so um i believe that the way that we talk about god matters both from what we take and import from our own lives and then put that put it on god fairly or unfairly but also for the ways that scripture witnesses to God, how that will um, transform and, and read back onto our lives and, and hopefully show us what a father is, um, what, et cetera, et cetera, and help to define to um, and, and kind of open up new space for us. So to say that the spirit is a she, quote unquote, is helpful in as much as it kind of shows this holy family father, son, and, and mother. Um, but even, even that really beautiful, tidy metaphor starts to break down and break open at some point. The key is that the spirit is not just some like residue of God, like, uh, like the long exposure of film, like where God was, or if you want like a really gross image, like the slime from a slug, you know? Like that's not what the spirit is. It's not just where God was. It's also not just like mere energy of where God's going. The Spirit is present. From the beginning, the Spirit, we might paraphrase the beginning of John's Gospel, was with God and was God. But always when you talk Trinity, when you have one person, you have all of them. They're, they're, they're one person even as they're different persons. So when you get one, you get God's all. So I'm going to invite Gary to read, uh, as we've laid some of that groundwork, uh, passages from both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was without shape or form. It was dark over the deep sea, and God's wind swept over the waters. On the day the Lord God made earth and sky, before any wild pl plants appeared on the earth, and before any field crops grew, because the God Lord God hadn't yet sent rain on the earth, and there was still no human being to farm the fertile land, though a stream rose from the earth and watered all of the fertile land, the Lord God formed the human from the topsoil of the fertile land and blew life's breath into his nostrils. The human came to life. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and put there the human he had formed in the fertile land. The Lord God grew every beautiful tree with edible fruit and also he grew the tree of life in the middle of a garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Gary. So Genesis is aptly named for beginnings. 
beginnings of the world, beginnings of our knowledge of a God who's existed forever, from everlasting to everlasting. Knowing God as creator is really important for our faith. Not just because it gives God some sort of like powerful, high and mighty catbird seat high above us, but also because knowing God as our maker tells us a lot about God, tells us about ourselves, it tells us about this world. Uh, you can tell a lot by a person on how they think things started. Like Jewish people's imaginations are formed by how they pray along these lines. Their, their key prayer uh, addresses God as, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe. Barak Adonai Eloheinu. This is expansive, explosive, divinely charged world that the Psalms tell us about, and, and I can't help but escape the way poet, uh, Jesuit poet Gerard Manley Hopkins talks about how God's fingerprints are everywhere you look. Uh, I'm going to keep coming back to this poem today called God's Grandeur. You can look it up this week. It's required reading. Uh, it starts and says, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil, right? I'll come back again and again because I think it so wonderfully and interestingly weaves images of God's spirit at work in creation. Here he describes a world imbued with the grandeur, the glory of God, full of the fiery flame of God's generative love. It's charged up this world that we live in. Like less like an iPhone on your kitchen counter and more like a horse laughing two-year-old who just went down the slide and that like thin hair is standing on end because it betrays that there's a whole lot more going on here than first appears. So it's full of that kinetic energy, that static electricity, this huge runway of potential. So in our Genesis scene of beginnings, we meet with all this potential nothingness. <laughs> some Hebrew scholars think the phrase used here is even some sort of wordplay. We're going to say it together because this is like the funnest phrase to say. Say tohu wabohu. Tohu wabohu, right? Like topsy-turvy, even Stephen. Like it's supposed to sound like that like in your mouth, right? And, and in Hebrew there's no vowels, so it's a little speculative. But tohu wabohu. And we'll keep talking about that a little bit. This emphasizes the empty void. Tohu wabohu. Nothingness. Waiting to be something. Wilderness. Waiting to be inhabited. This word keeps popping up throughout the Exodus narrative talking about wilderness too. Uselessness. Waiting to be made something beautiful. There's a pregnancy even before there's the thought of new life. It is over this formless, these dark waters that God's spirit, the breath of God, sweeps. Before God speaks, there's like this audible sigh over the waters. And then Hopkins, Gerard Manley Hopkins, he bookends his poem. That the, that what you heard was the beginning of it. The end of it says, the Holy Ghost, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breath and ah, bright wings. This is a story of God at creation. Not just a force going out from God, but a personality participating in creation with all of God as God. 
We're given this creation story, and, and with it, we're given the earliest hints of who and how God is. A loving community that's always reaching outside of God's self towards creation. This beginning story is a story of grace in abundance. A lot of ancient creation stories, almost like 201, start not with grace and abundance, but with violence and scarcity, like there's gods fighting each other. Like the Enuma Elish, for instance, has Marduk vanquishing opponents and bringing forth life from the spark of conflict. That's not what our God does. This Genesis comes from a God of pure grace. The triune God sets the world up in such a way that it can be filled, and then God fills it. Not because God's lonely, God's never been lonely, but because, and not because God needs us or anything, but purely out of joy and amusement and abundance, out of the overflow of God's love, out of the word of God's mouth with the spirit going over tohu wabohu. Perhaps you're here today and you're stuck in this place of wilderness, of formlessness, of void. You're, you lack direction. I think our lives always spin back if we don't watch them and if we're not held by God into some sort of chaos. We lack vision. We, we lack usefulness. It seems impossible to break out of this place and maybe easier just to drift. But here's the good news that God wants to be a part of your tohu wabohu. And in fact, God already is a part of it. Before there was a void, there was an active and a loving God. And that boring and fretful wilderness that you're in is actually the perfect canvas for life and breath and the grandeur of God to be breathed over and spoken into. God, that God is already there and will break into that. Or maybe you're here today and you feel cast out. Maybe it's your own doing <laughs> that you're cast out. Your sin has come to roost. You don't like you, so why should anyone else like you? Or you're stuck in cycles of sin and death and it makes turning this whole thing around seem really impossible or unimaginable. Consider that God's hovering creative work in the spirit is not completed. It's not over. That even after the flood, which marked the sorrowful wrath of God over a sinful creation... There was a creation of a new sort of tohu wabohu that still featured a spirit dove envoy hovering over the waters, waiting to bring peace and to initiate new life and flourishing. Even after the flood, even after your sin, even in the midst of your sin, there's still this spirit trying to bring peace and new life. This is also why at the baptism of Jesus, when Jesus and John the Baptist are waist deep in the Jordan River, Jesus participates in John's baptism for the forgiveness of sin. And you might ask, whose sin? Jesus doesn't sin, right? Luke 3 says, as Jesus was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven and said, you are my son whom I loved whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. The Spirit once again hovers over these waters, this time waters that represent cleansing, 
and healing and renewal and grafting into God's people. The Spirit hovers over the waters and testifies to who Jesus is. This is the same Spirit who interjects who you are to God in Christ, beloved and a source and sight of great divine pleasure. God loves you and wants to be with you. God's creative work with the Spirit is not finished. And the Father wants to remake you into the image of his Son who joined with a lot of folks who needed cleansing, healing, and to come out of the other end of the flood new, useful, and able to be inhabited and worked with by God. This is still happening. So returning to our text in Genesis Gary first read from Genesis 1, and then the next slide was Genesis 2. We're given an alternate telling of creation. I wonder a little bit if this is supposed to kind of prime us to receive and read the Gospels. Like the Gospels, we have one Jesus and four authoritative narrations of Jesus' good news. There's kind of too much just for like one flat, like five o'clock news telling of the gospel. So we need the excess and grace of multiple witnesses, and we need the excess and grace of even for Genesis poetry. This is purposeful storytelling from different authors and different angles that keys us into something that this whole story is way too big for us. So the first creation account kind of mounts this time-lapse camera with a microphone at creation and shows that God's words make worlds. Let there be, let there be, there's repetition. Days one, day two, day three, day four, through seven. This, this is a litany, this is this generative poem and God playfully repeats, let there be. Light comes into darkness, sky, land and sea, plant life, sun, moon and stars in their courses above, plants, birds, animals, and now humanity. All with the words someone might use while laying out a spread for a big feast. That's good. God says, it's good. It was good. And it's good because God said so. And even the rest uh, uh, is, is part of the story that God creates for six days and then humans on the sixth. And right when we think that we're the crown of creation like that we finish it all off, God shows just how penultimate we are, or maybe how exhausting we are, by capping off the rest of the week with rest. God takes the seventh day off. But God also starts the next week by resting. I got to sit in on this webinar this week with this uh, Portland pastor, uh, A.J. Swoboda, and he was talking about Sabbath, and I was really encouraged and challenged by some of the insight that he offered that Jews celebrate Sabbath starting each Friday evening so that the first thing you do on a Saturday is come out of rest. Like you don't prepare for rest, you don't achieve your preparations and then you rest. Like you wake up into a world that you didn't do anything for and don't need to do anything for it to continue and to thrive. That's the imagination for rest coming out of the story. And then you do that again each week. You rinse and repeat, rest and work, rest and work. Isn't that beautiful? But I was also haunted by a thought in his presentation about just how scandalous and 
resistant we are to like Sabbathing, to resting in an ordered way that points to God. Particularly how unjust the Sabbath can seem. Like, doesn't it seem like a luxury or a privilege to be able to just stop work, right? But so the thing that haunted me is he, he, he kind of just said it in passing. He said, the poor don't Sabbath because the rich don't Sabbath. Meaning the sheer fact that those of us on the upper part of society don't rest means those who serve us or depend on us can't rest either. How awful is that? Like, I think considering even God, whose riches know no bounds, rest and we don't rest. That might be like the most subtle and central heresy to our lives if we don't keep Sabbath. Is that we pretend that we're like God and that we don't need to rest, but that gets both God and us wrong. Like, we're pretending we're like God, but not the God that rests, right? It's crazy and, and haunted me because I don't do it a lot. He also said something about how, um, especially if you're a pastor, but really any job, if you, if you break uh, nine commandments, you are unemployable and you get fired. But if you break the Sabbath, you probably get a raise, you know? And I think that's true. And th that, again, haunts me, right? We get back on track. That's a side note. So we're given this other creation account that Gary read second, which is sort of zoomed in. This is a God who speaks far less but carefully crafts, crafts a human being from the topsoil. After all, Adam means something like the fertile earth. From dust we came and to dust we shall return then is not a threat, it's just the truth. Like that, that's what's going on here. God crafts carefully a human from the, the topsoil, and then God blew breath into this man's nostrils. Do you understand what this means? This is one of those things that we read past and we, we don't realize the implications. This means that the very breath in the first human and every subsequent human being's lungs originates from the breath, the spirit of God. That means that no matter how obscured the image of God is, how cracked and broken the icon, we are made by God breathing. We are made to breathe God's spirit. We are made to be filled, inflated, animated by God. We're made to let the capillaries of our lungs process this divinity and help us to live into this communion. Church Father Irenaeus famously said, the glory of God is humanity fully alive. Such a statement is not of how great people are, but just how generous God is to have breathed into human beings in such a special and beautiful way. It shows just how electric, how charged with God's, God's grandeur we actually are when we respond as we should to the breath of God which fills us. When we respond to the kind, caring dove who broods over our chaos and flaps her wings in order to bring new life into this bent world. This means also an implication for this that the Spirit's work is, as a theologian Amos Young puts it, the Spirit's work is a work of interactivity and co-creativity. It's interactive. We create with God. In some cases, these creation accounts, God simply breathes out a word and creation obeys. 
see how triune that is? God, God breathes a word. God, word, breath, all together there, right? And this obedience of creation is, you know, let there be light, and there's light. Let the waters separate. Uh, but God's creating is also interactive. Creation times up to this, like, cosmic double dutch This joins this divine dance, and God names things and invites humanity to exercise dominion and agency to do the same. That's really trusting. Um, like, think about... Um, when you were a kid and your parents let you name a pet and then how much you regretted that like 10 years later when that dog was still alive or that like guinea pig was still rolling and you named it like Pinky or something, right? Like God trust us in that naming work. God sees various facets of creation and says good and then he sees humanity and says very good. God even commands the first plants and animals and then humanity to multiply. Don't just reproduce, but team, he says. Be fruitful. God says this, and so there's no tohu wabohu anymore. In this way, the spirit, in the spirit, creation continues. Creation even echoes now. This kind of co-creativity still belongs to us. Because even as we're, we're embodied, like we're, we're embodied spirits, we're also like inspirited bodies filled with God's life and breath in this creative calling, joining God in something that God's already been doing for a long time. So I want to close with these words from Psalm 104. Psalm 104, 30. It says, when you let loose your breath, they are created. And you make the surface of the ground brand new again. When you, Yahweh, let loose your breath, Ruach, they, all of life, are created. And you make the surface of the ground brand new again. Will you pray with me? Father, let loose your breath again. Create and recreate us. Make this ground fertile and flourishing. Make us brand new. Grow us into the image of your son. Produce in us a bountiful harvest of fruit, love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Lord, we thank you for your spirit who hovers over our emptiness, our wilderness, who brings us to life. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.